0: Father, we thank you this morning for another chance to bring you glory. It is grace that you even allow broken people like us, sinners, to hear your voice, to to not be judged in accordance with our transgressions. Instead, we receive your mercy. We are credited with the righteousness of your Son on the basis of the gift of faith. And so we need still your help to be those who you have made us, who you have sanctified us to be. Help us to recognize who we are and what you've done for us and how we must respond. We ask this in the name of Christ, for his glory. Amen. You may have heard this one, Um, Albert Einstein is the one widely credited with saying the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. There's truth in that, which is why 1 Corinthians 10, it's not why, but there's truth in it, and it's the reason Paul wrote truth when he said that the things in the Old Testament were in part written for the sake of the church. Now these things happened as examples for us, he says in 1 Corinthians 10, so that we would not crave evil things as they, Israel, craved. With that in mind, I read from 2 Kings 17 a little while ago. I ask you to turn there if you're not there already. This text definitely falls into the category of what Paul was talking about. Uh, it is undoubtedly, and, and, and we read this, it is one of the saddest passages in all of the Bible. Uh, it is a recollection of why Israel, the, the northern kingdom, fell to the Assyrian Empire. That happened in about 722 B.C., so we're talking uh, the 8th century B.C. And and this st- text, it stands out to us almost 2,800 years after the fact of what happens when we go spiritually insane, When we sever ourselves from our head, who is Jesus Christ, our head. You know, I don't know if you've ever been morbid enough to cut an animal in half or something. God made some animals, if they lose a body part, another can grow in its place. It's a process that's called regeneration. It's the formation of something living where something was not there living before. But there is one body part that if you cut it off, it's not going to grow back, and that's the head. If you cut the head off, that's it. Finito. It's over. You cut off the head and you sever the body from the nervous system. You sever, you know, if we're talking about the human body, you're severing. You know, we can lose arms. We can lose uh, all kinds of body parts. We can lose appendixes. We can lose kidneys. But if we lose our head, then the nervous system is gone. The brain is gone. The mind is gone from the rest of the body. And you maybe have known someone in the hospital before who has been declared brain dead. And while the body can still have some function when somebody is brain dead, we know that any hope of meaningful life at that point is over. And as the church, our head is Christ. Christ is the head of the body of Christ the church every believer in Jesus Christ is a member of the church and we each have different functions 1 Corinthians 12 talks about how you know hand and feet they operate in different ways within the body but you have to be connected ultimately to the head if you're not connected ultimately to the head well we are joined to Christ for his glory he's the only head of the church Ephesians 4:15 says We are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Christ is the head of the body, the church. And without Christ as the head of the church, the body and each individual part will not grow, it will It will die. When the head is severed, the body no longer functions. There is no regeneration, there is no life. And so when we get to 2 Kings 17, we're not talking about the church, but we are talking about Israel. And it's been a little over 200 years since the kingdom of Israel had been ripped in two. After the death of King Solomon, you know, when we think about Israel... It is the years of David that are considered you know, the, the greatest in the sense that he was their, most, their greatest king. He was the, the one after God's own heart. He's the one who all other kings are compared to. When we get to Solomon's reign, they were actually a little more glorious. Not that he was, but they, they were more glorious. He reigned for 40 years in relative peace. He built the, the first temple, which was resplendent. Um, When the second temple came along, some people cried because they remembered what the first looked like. Um, Solomon became unbelievably wealthy, and to go along with his physical wealth, of course, God gave him something even better, which was wisdom. But that said, we know that Solomon, for a large part of his reign as king, turned away from God. He, He loved the world too much. Uh, foreign women turned his heart away from the Lord to foreign gods. 1 Kings 11.4, one of the saddest verses in the Bible, tells us his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. When we compare what the Bible says about David's heart to Solomon's, that's a, that's a, a sad thing to see. His partial devotion was really no devotion at all for that time because God's not going to compete with others. You know, God's not the AP top 25 rankings. God's not there to be number one. He he doesn't care who's number two. He's the only God. Uh, And and so Solomon's idolatry, he turned to idols and it made the Lord angry. And 1 Kings 11, 11 through 13 say that uh, God said after Solomon died, he would tear most of his kingdom away from his son. So the kingdom Established under Saul, David the great king, then Solomon, it was going going to be divided. And all of this came to pass right after Solomon died. His son Rehoboam, not as wise as his father, lacking that wisdom, acted harshly against his people, essentially right from the get-go. We talk about the first hundred days of a presidency. Rehoboam didn't wait that long, it it would appear in Scripture. And, And ten tribes rebelled. Ten tribes said, we're out of here. And they made Jeroboam their king, and they set up what became known as the northern kingdom of Israel. They took on the name Israel, and then to the south in Jerusalem there was Judah. But from the beginning, Jeroboam's kingdom was one born of idolatry. He had a prophet of God, ironically enough, named Ahijah, who told Jeroboam what was going to happen and that he would be king But even when all of this happened, Jeroboam did not walk in the ways of the Lord. Instead, to consolidate his power, he basically ended up setting up a a new religion, one that had vestiges of biblical Judaism, but was really ranked with man-made idolatry. Well, Jeroboam died, and for the following 200 years, the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, would be ruled by wicked king after wicked king. I think there was 19 kings, if I want to say, uh, of the northern kingdom. Not one of them is spoken of well. Hosea was the last of them. Uh, He was not as evil as others, but that's not saying much. And after two centuries of wicked kings who refused to heed the word of God, who refused to repent, Israel all but lost its identity as the people of God. So God who... What does God say about himself in Exodus 36? I'm patient. I'm long-suffering. But God will have enough, and God finally had enough and gave them over to the Assyrians. The ten tribes of the north were exiled. We read this. They were exiled. They were scattered so that they couldn't come together again and rise up together. They were scattered, and they pretty much dissipated. The northern kingdom was headless, and so it was dead. So the question is why did this happen? Why did Israel fall? Well, when we read through the book of Kings, the first Kings, Second Kings, a lot of it is straightforward history. But when we get to 2 Kings 17, we get to verses 6 through 23, really beginning in verse 7, the author of the book kind of takes a step back to answer the question, why? So after that, you know, that's an extensive backdrop. That's what I want us to look at. Why did this happen? And the first reason Israel fell is in verse 7. And fundamentally, it's this. They abandoned their covenant with God. They abandoned their covenant with God and feared other gods. They sinned against the Lord their God, says the writer. And notice how he recalls the Exodus and how God brought them out of Egypt, out of bondage. He brought them out of slavery. The writer is recalling all of this You know, It was in Exodus 19, three months after being removed from Egypt, that God called Moses up on that mountain. He said to his people, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God is holy. And he was calling his people to be holy. He reminded them of who he was because he told them, to be holy in response. God gave them commandments to obey in chapter 20. The first of those is, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. By the way, he talks about how he brought them up out of Egypt in the middle of that. But I am the Lord your God. I am God. No other gods but me. That's the overarching commandment. And yet for 200 years after Solomon died, They basically abandoned the Lord. They they feared other gods. Why were they in that land to begin with? You know, God had driven out the wicked nations of Canaan, the, the, the Canaanite tribes in the region, out of the promised land. He set that whole land up so that His holy nation could possess it and be holy in the land He had declared holy. God told them in Leviticus 18.3, you shall not walk in their statutes, meaning those Canaanite nations. You you shouldn't be like them. The statutes of their nations, the ones He drove out. But in 2 Kings 17.8, look at verse 8, the verdict was in, they walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out. Quite frankly, the way... Israel chose to conduct itself. They rendered what God did for them. They rendered the Exodus, the conquest, the kingdom, the things, all these things done by His grace, all these things done by His power. They rendered them inconsequential. They were meaningless. Israel's kings were supposed to lead them in righteousness, but they were wicked, and the people followed their king. The history of the kings of the north was one of nonstop idolatry. Read through the summaries of their reigns. In our Bible reading, we're past the the part where we're reading through that. Go back and look at it again, and you'll see that almost all of those kings of the north are referenced as walking in the sins of Jeroboam. And what about Jeroboam? Nadab was the son of Jeroboam. He followed his father in First Kings fifteen thirty four. Basha, First Kings sixteen two. All all these talk about Jeroboam. Zimri in sixteen nine nineteen. Omri in 1 Kings 16.26. Ahab. We all know Ahab. I hope you know Ahab. It's written of Ahab in 1 Kings 16.31 that he was so wicked he considered the sins of Jeroboam to be a trivial thing. So, so it's, good. it's getting worse as time goes on. Okay? Uh, Jehoram. 2 Kings. Uh, Jehu. Jehoahaz. Jehoash. Jeroboam the 2nd. What a name, huh? I mean, to to walk. Uh, Zechariah, king of Israel, not the Zechariah in the book of Zechariah. Menahem, Pekahiah, Pekah. They all did evil in the sight of the Lord. All of them were idolaters. All of them followed after other gods. And how dare they? They forgot the grace of God. They forgot the loving kindness of God. They forgot the Exodus. They forgot the power of God. They, They forgot they were sinners. They forgot that only God can save. They forgot how God had saved them from their enemies over and over again. They stopped acknowledging God as the Lord. He wasn't their life. Just part of their life. He he was one of many gods. It should be noted that when we talk about the idolatry of Israel, it's not like they stopped saying anything about Yahweh. They just, He was one among many gods inconsequential at that. So, ultimately, they stopped living by the Word of God and they adopted their, what, what does the word say, their own customs, their own ethics, like the people around them. And yeah, they might justify themselves by using a little scripture, mixing it with their good intentions, rather than really repent and really submit to the Word of God. Their worship became indistinguishable from the world, from watchtower to fortified city, on every high hill, under every green tree, the writer says. The idolatry and the forsaking of God and the sinning was everywhere. And it isn't merely that they disobeyed the Lord, because everyone who's not Jesus Christ disobeys the Lord from time to time. It's that the sin was so rampant. The the, the forsaking of God was absolutely blatant. They were provoking, they did evil things, verse 11, they did evil things provoking the Lord. How stupid is that? How, how, how spiritually numb, how spiritually dead do you have to be to actively provoke the Lord? They thumbed their noses at the memory of the Exodus. They, they turned their backs on the God of the conquest. They set themselves above the Lord who had established David and his line as king. So when we read through 1 and 2 Kings, and we process in our minds the depths to which these children of God sunk, idolatry, they they engulfed themselves in, the utter blasphemy characterizing their existence, it's tempting to read this with mouths hung open thinking, man, they were evil. They were but rather than hang with our mouths open because of what they did, we ought to be shaking our heads because we to our great peril are not too far removed. Not only has our society deteriorated to the point of Israel and worse, but even much of the professing church has gone their own way. Instead of remembering the Lord and holding fast to His Word, while we hang our mouths open over Israel's sin, we ought to look in the mirror and brush our teeth. Because we're dirty. It's us. There are idols and they are in our hearts. We idolize a lot of things in this world. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's health. Maybe it's your place in society. Maybe it's security. Maybe it's entertainment. Maybe it's sex. Maybe it's travel. Whatever is popular, whatever is convenient, whatever will help us win. Sometimes we idolize our closest relationships. Sometimes we idolize our families. Sometimes we idolize our children. Sometimes we idolize change. Other times we can idolize the way things have always been done. There are plenty of ways to create an idol in your heart. Our idols, I've, I've heard it said, I, don't, I, I wish I could attribute it properly, our, our hearts are sin factories, idol factories. And we always have to be watching for those we can idolize all kinds of our personal preferences. And when we do that, we are thumbing our noses at God. We are betraying who we, those who call themselves Christians, those who profess to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are betraying who we have been called to be a holy nation. Yes, God said that about Israel in in Exodus 19, and no, we're not Israel, but 1 Peter 2.9 says the same thing about the church. He's quoting that and applying it to the church. We are a holy nation. Paul says, the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Instead of keeping the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ center to everything we're about, we make it the periphery. It's on the periphery, and sometimes it's not mentioned at all. And and we're so quick to call others into question instead of taking a good, hard look at how we have forsaken the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and that is audacity. That's pride. And I can be as guilty of that as anyone in this world. Because I'm a sinner who's only saved by the grace of God. If God is good to us, it's not because of us. If God is good to us, it's because of His faithfulness, not our goodness. And whenever we depart from Him, from His faithfulness, which when we rightly understand that, it's going to drive us to pure worship. When we depart from that, we reveal our own idolatrous hearts. You know, the northern kingdom was born into idolatry, and instead of repenting of their sins and returning to worship the one true God in spirit and in truth. They provoked God to anger with over 200 years of wagging their heads at the memory of His goodness. They utterly abandoned their covenant with God. They stopped fearing Him. And blessed is the man who fears the Lord. That was one of the verses our kids learned a couple weeks ago. Psalm 1. A second reason they fell is related to the first, of course. And I've already alluded to it, but we see the ramifications of rejecting God's Word. Look at verses 12 and 13 again. They served idols concerning which the Lord had said to them, notice the word said, you shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer, saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you through my servants. The prophets for two centuries they forsook God for two centuries He in His grace and mercy sent them His servants sent them prophets Elijah for one Elisha my my personal favorite the under the underdog Micaiah uh, if you don't know Micaiah go read First Kings twenty two um, Hosea Hosea spoke to this northern kingdom of Israel. And that's just a few of them. They spoke the word of God to kings. They warned them, forsake your wicked ways and repent. Return to Yahweh. Hold fast to the word of God. And when they refused, the prophets foretold of impending judgment. And that judgment always came to pass. I would tell you to ask Ahab, but you can't because he died on the battlefield. Just like God said he would. They rejected the word of God. They didn't listen, but verse 14, they stiffened their neck like their fathers who did not believe the Lord their God. And that's an utterly tragic description. Especially after Moses in Deuteronomy 10 had warned the people who were about to go into the promised land. Why did that first generation not go into the promised land? Because of idolatry. (laughs) He warned them not to make the mistakes of their fathers who'd worshipped that golden calf and wandered in the wilderness for forty years. And instead, they were to do, as Deuteronomy ten sixteen says, circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. Uh, in other words, make no room for pride. You know, make no room for self righteousness. Make no room for gods other than the one true God. Paul puts it this way in Romans thirteen fourteen: Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. But they didn't listen. They they doubled down. Uh, Jeroboam uh, made one 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 calf's not good. Whenever you know, you don't repent, you're just your sin's just going to get keep getting worse. Jeroboam didn't one calf wasn't good enough anymore. not one calf wasn't going to sell the car. Had to have two. They didn't believe. Verse fifteen. They rejected his statutes. They turned their back on his word and his law. They rejected his covenant. The promises he made to them and the promise they made to him, by the way, to be their, for he would be their God, they, they followed vanity and became vain, doing whatever they wanted to do without reference to the holiness of God. Heinous immorality, recounted in 16 and 17, uh, made molten images two calves. I mean, how much more obstinate does it get than that? They made their children pass through the fire. But I tell you what, are we any better? Are we any better when we pick and choose which parts of the Scripture we want to pay attention to? Are we any better when our agendas and our coming together are completely devoid of the Gospel and the implications of the Gospel? Are we any better when we cling to personal preferences over and against the freedom we have in Christ? Are we any better when we use that freedom as a cloak for sin? Are we any better when we ignore God's Word to pursue our own desires, even in the guise of doing God's work? 2 Kings 17 is screaming to us from Deuteronomy 10, saying, circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer says the Lord. Know the ramifications of rejecting God's word and don't do it. And Israel didn't listen. So the third reason brought about their fall, the warning of wearing out your welcome. Second Kings 17 verse 18. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from His sight. None was left except the tribe of Judah. 722 B.C. Only Judah remained after that. And the author here is obviously writing about the the northern kingdom as something that has happened in the past. And it's as if he's wondering how long before Judah incurs this same thing. How long before Judah meets this same destiny. How long before Judah is the object of the wrath of God because of what verse 19 says, Also Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God but walked in the customs which Israel had introduced. Judah was little better than its northern brethren. Plunderers from Egypt and Assyria and Syria should have caused both kingdoms to come to their senses, but it's like the author knows Judah isn't learning from what has happened and it's just a matter of time. After all, verse 20 The Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. You know, there were glimpses of hope in in Judah. They had some good kings. Hezekiah was a good king. Hezekiah was living, and just a few short years after the northern kingdom fell, Hezekiah it's like he's looking northward and paying attention to what happened and he looks back to the Word of God and he remembers those promises. He remembers God's goodness and he restores proper worship in the temple. And he invites all of Judah and all those from the northern kingdom who were still kind of around the few that remained to come to Jerusalem for the Passover in Second Chronicles 30. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were unfaithful to the Lord God of their fathers so that He made them a horror, as you see. Now do not stiffen your neck. I mean, how how many times are we hearing that this morning? Do not stiffen your neck like your fathers, but yield to the Lord and enter His sanctuary which He has consecrated forever and serve the Lord your God that His burning anger may turn away from you. I mean, Hezekiah saw what was going on and did all he could to change the course of Judah. But he did die, and after him came one named Manasseh, who was the worst of them all. A a horrific king, and though good King Josiah would come after Manasseh, by then Judah was on a slippery slope, and they hadn't learned from the north's mistakes, and they were past the point of no return. So about 120 years after Israel falls, Babylon came in, and absolutely wiped out Judah. They didn't learn from Israel's mistakes, and so God sent Babylon to wipe them out. Judah wore out its welcome before the Lord. They exhausted God's patience. They exhausted God's long-suffering. So God did what I believe was the most loving thing He could do. He gave them over to exile. Because God will not tolerate His name being defamed forever. God will not tolerate stiff-necked obstinance forever. And in verses 21 through 23, we see the assured doom of decapitation. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam son of Nebat king. Then Jeroboam drove Israel away from following the Lord and made them commit a great sin. The sons of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam which he did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel from his sight as he spoke through all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away into exile from their own land to Assyria until this day. The sad reality of Israel's fall is that it was absolutely inevitable. Judah's was not inevitable, Israel's was. Let me explain why. Because it's in 2 Samuel 7, where God makes a covenant with a guy by the name of David. And he tells David, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rods of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, and as I took away from Saul, whom I removed before you, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. God said that to David. So the northern kingdom's doom was assured. Because they, well, God tore them from the house of David. When Solomon committed his sins, God brought discipline upon Judah. But his loving kindness didn't depart the house of David. But Israel, what the ten tribes did, they cut off their head. They decapitated themselves. In this case, the line of David was supposed to be their king... And so when they abandoned the line of David, even though Rehoboam was not a wise king, when they left him, they cut their own head off. And they gave a big amen to leaving the promised blessings of David by making an idolater king and following everything he told them. And in verse 21, Jeroboam drove Israel away from following the Lord and made them commit a great sin. Jeroboam was driving the car and Israel were willing passengers going off the cliff. It took 200 years for that car to reach the bottom, but when it did, and ultimately it did, it exploded. Like an 80's TV show. They did not depart from Jeroboam's sins until the Lord removed Israel from his sight. As he spoke through, as he spoke his word, as he spoke through all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away into exile from their own land to Assyria until this day. And what we'd better learn, beloved, which is as equally applicable now as it would have been for them, is that when you sever your head from the Davidic king, you have assured your own doom. Israel willingly abandoned the king of promise. Beloved, we know We know right now that the Davidic king is Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of the covenant God made with David in 2 Samuel 7. He is the descendant God raised up. He is the one through whom David's throne is established forever. He is the one who will sit on that throne forever. The Father has established His only begotten Son, and the Son has pointed back to the Father. And Jesus, unlike Solomon, did no iniquity. There was no discipline to be unleashed on him, but he did incur the rods of men and the, of the sons of men anyway. He incurred the discipline of his Father, and why? On behalf of everyone he came to save. Jesus bore the full fury of his Father's fierce, fierce wrath on the cross. Jesus died, Jesus was buried, but the Father's loving kindness did not depart from his Son, And on the third day, he raised Jesus up. And now Jesus' house and Jesus' kingdom and Jesus' throne will endure forever before the Father. God raised Jesus, the son of David, from dead on the third day, and he has victory over sin and death. And today, you must trust in the Davidic king holy. If not, you are cutting your own head off. And it's one thing to say you're saved. A lot of people say I'm saved. Even the northern kingdom often professed allegiance to God like so many today. But God will not hear from those who have no head. No spiritual voice comes from someone who has no spiritual head. Your mouth may move, but unless you are in Christ, you are following vanity and becoming vain. Will we return to the Lord, or will we decapitate ourselves, or have we already? May we not be like the northern kingdom and sever ourselves from Christ. May we learn from the fall of Israel and remember the Lord and His goodness and the grace by which He saves idolatrous sinners like you and me. May we, by God's grace and His Word, like Deuteronomy 30 says, choose life that we might live. Let's pray. Father, I I place these words in Your hands. We place this in Your hands. It's all we can do. We have to give everything to You and live not by our own opinions, but by Your Word that You've established your Son as the head of your church, not us. By your grace, Father, may we in love keep your commandments. This we will do by your grace if you permit. And I pray that any who are resistant to your will this morning might repent for the furtherance of your glory. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.